is uh, one of my relatives, <laughs> and her name is Lily, and she's the daughter of my nephew, Jackie. They live in New York. They're New Yorkers. There's a school project some of you are perhaps familiar with, and I'm getting familiar with, called Flat Stanley. A bulletin board falls on Stanley. He gets flattened, and, and then the other kids, in keeping with that, this is Flat Lily. And she sent it to me and said, could, you, could I travel with you in Texas? And we're supposed to take her places. And you know what this reminds me of? That goofy thing you carried around uh, in Israel. What is that Travelocity thing? That little occultic figure? Uh, Anne had this little, uh, what is that deal, the gnome? We're not like on every holy site in Israel, and she's ruining it with this. Anyway, never mind. This is not quite like it. So this is Flat Lily, and so... Um, we take her to places. So yesterday we took, we were at Jones Hall. We took her to Jones Hall. And I took her to Houston City Hall, Houston Public Library. And then the teacher's instructions are, um, take Lily to places in your state that are really significant and, and that are found almost nowhere else. And so naturally we took her to Central Texas Barbecue in Pearland, Texas, USA. There you go. Thank you. You are Christians in here. Yay. And not only did I take her, but the lady, she's a Cuban lady who's like the original owner of the place, allowed me to take Lily in the kitchen. And I took Lily to Central Texas. Oh, she still smells from barbecue. And uh, so, um, and we're just going to take her places because they think, see, Texas, isn't that like uh, cowboys and Indians and, uh, you know, tumbleweed and we're going to take her to NASA. I took her, I showed her, I took her to the Houston City skyline, which is, you know, unbelievably uh, beautiful. We're going to take her to uh, Kima and show her water. They think we're, they think we're West Texas or worse, East Texas, but we're not. So here's what I would like for you to do if you don't mind. Stay there, Brenda. Could I ask you to hold Lily and then, um, if you don't mind, folks, can you try to look like you're enjoying this? And, uh, and then I'll send it. And Lily, Lily will be at church. Are you ready, guys? Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. She's a first grader. And uh, I did all that because uh, I'm not prepared today. So here's the deal. Lily's uh, dad, my nephew, great kid, he's a, he's a tr tremendous athlete, participated in all these triathletes where they do three things. Uh, and he's a swimming and diving coach in, in high school and just unbelievable. He's a Jewish guy. And his wife, also just a tremendous athlete, is, from, is a Catholic lady. And so I dragged little Lily to the to a Baptist church today. So Lily goes to church whether you like it or not. So I'm going to take Lily to the empty tomb later, to the cross, and my Jewish nephew is going to be ever so thrilled when he sees where I brought his daughter. But that's what happens, man, when you're, you know, that's the way it goes. So anyway, thanks for doing that. I, I found a place where I can find a longhorn uh, bull. I'm going to take a picture of that, you know, just, I got the Texas flag and 
things like that. And then a guy in the last class, he said, if you really want to give her a taste of Texas, you ought to take her to a firing range. <laughs> Should be easy. I think we got one right there in the children's building. We keep it. Yeah, it's Texas. <clears throat> so here's what we're doing. We're in Psalm 33 today. Lord willing, next week, Psalm 34. The following week, uh, Brother Chuck is back on duty, and we're going to begin a study in Micah. In Micah. Why Micah? Because we had to come up with something. Uh, we wanted a shorter Old Testament book since we just spent a considerable period of time in Luke New Testament. So we'll do Micah. Uh, neither Chuck nor I know much about the contents. So this will be a journey we will take together. Micah. Next week, Psalm 34. Today, Psalm 33. Take a look. It begins this way. Praise to the creator and preserver. It's an exhortation to praise God for who he is and for what he has done. And I would like to ask you, who wrote this psalm? Yes, that's what most people would say, David. And you answer that way for good reason. Most of the Psalms are credited to David, but not all. This is one of the Psalms written anonymously. We really don't know who the author of this one is. Of the 150 Psalms, David wrote the majority, but not all. This is a collection of songs. It's Israel's ancient hymn book. And there are different lyricists, if you will, all inspired by God. So not all are written by David. This is written by somebody. Could it be David? Sure. But we don't know this for sure because it doesn't say so. It doesn't matter for our purposes. Here's how it begins. Sing for joy in the Lord. By the way, that's the only way you could do what we've been asked to do. You can only sing for joy in the Lord. If you are looking for a reason to sing for joy in the world, you're going to really have to look a long way. It's quite an unsettling world situation we not only find ourselves in, have created. We really have drifted from God's plan because we've drifted from God. So this is a time of great instability on an international scale. If you're looking for a reason to keep going, you're going to be hard-pressed. If you're looking for a reason to be joyous, you're going to be hard-pressed if you look to externals. Hence, the psalmist says, don't focus on your in-the-Lord-ness, for he never changes. So every Christian has two locations. One is physical, one is spiritual. Uh, uh, for some, your physical location, we just found out, is Pearland. But that's not the essence of who you are. You simply happen to be an in Christ one in Pearland. But if you emphasize your in Pearlandness more than your in Christness, you're going to run out of songs of joy because externals can be quite distracting, distressing, and disappointing. So make sure your in Christness is the essence of who you are. Everything else is collateral. It's not the essence. It's at the core of your reason for singing joyously. And the exhortation is given to a select group who the psalmist refers to as righteous ones. Do this, O oh, you 
righteous ones. Who is that? People who live rightly, not necessarily. It's people who are in right relationship with Almighty God and who, as a result, surely live differently. But the reason why righteousness from a biblical point of view is not so much about right living as a much as much as right being is that no one can live right enough to be pleasing to God. The New Testament says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to be a righteous ones is to be a righteous one is to be rightly related to the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian is an upright, righteous one because the Christian has said, I possess none of my own by faith. I throw myself upon your righteousness, fulfiller of the law. Would you impart to me new standing? I bring debt. Would you credit by my faith in you? Would you credit to my account your assets of righteousness in spite of my sin? That's exactly, that's why we see... uh, the words of the Lord Jesus paid in full, paid in full. So, so this exhortation to praise, to sing a song of joy, notice, is given to righteous ones. Why? Because praise is becoming to the upright. So do you want to know how to look good to God? Be part of a praise community. It ought to be that everyone who populates the earth offers praise to God, but it's not what it ought to be. Therefore, God has selected out from the population of humankind a unique population who by faith have been set apart. Praise is really becoming to them. Praise is the natural response of those who have received new standing in Christ Jesus. Praise becomes, fits, is appropriate, is consistent with those for they have received such mercy. And do you notice what's implied is that the psalmist is saying, I could do this without you, but it's better with you. Hence, his appeal is collective. You righteous ones. That's church called out ones. So the local church uh, could be quite disappointing because it's made up of people who could be quite disappointing, including its ministers, for sure. But don't give up on the local church, though you may give up on a particular local church. Maybe you ought to. may not be good. But don't give up on the concept of uh, coming out to be part of a praise community. Why? Because praise can only really be effectively offered to God in a community. Prayer can be private. Praise, praise is when you call people's attention to the wonderful nature of Almighty God. It's not to be a solitary private activity. So you came here today, which means you had to perhaps set your alarm and get up, get out of bed, groom to some extent, though it would have been so much easier to stay in your PJs. You had to get in the car. It might have been a little foggy. I don't know what it was like. You had to come to try to find a parking spot in our wonderfully crowded parking lots. You had to traipse through the halls and you had to greet people, nod your head and so on, and you ran into one or two you don't like very much. Then you've heard some things from the ministers of the church. By and large, you go for some things. They just make you cringe. And then you you heard some 
songs that maybe were not your favorite, and maybe they were. Maybe it's just it's kind of a mixed bag. It matters, but not enough to keep you from doing what you did. You came anyway because you know you're part of a community now. You were saved personally and individually, but you were saved to be part of a collective, a new nation, if you will, not bounded by geography, bounded by the embrace of the Lord Jesus. And you simply want onlookers to know you're part of it. So you want to be in a place characterized by calling attention to the wonders of Almighty God in song, in prayer, in conversation, in focus on him, in encouragement. And something in you tells you you ought to do it because that's what heaven will be like, only better. A concert of praise forever. So there are at least two things we'll be doing in heaven. I don't want to discourage you from going there, but one is that you'll be serving in heaven. Service does not cease. It just gets better. You say, what's heavenly about serving? I want to break. No, 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 no. But the reason you want to break from service now is in some cases it's been disappointing to you. You haven't gotten rewarded for it. In some cases you've gone, your service has gone underappreciated. In some cases you've been tired, sick, ill, can't keep it up all the rest. Can you imagine serving Almighty God with none of those limitations? Full satisfaction, full joy, no fatigue, nothing interfering, no competition, no impure motive. All of us serve with a measure of impure motive. Let's just face it. Not then. So that's part of what we'll do in heaven. Second thing, we'll be praising God forever. So we might as well get used to doing it now. And hence the psalmist so exhorts us. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. Notice, with lyre, L-Y-R-E, sing praises to him with a harp. What kind? Ten strings. Two instruments uh, are typically used in the psalms to provide musical accompaniment. Many instruments were used. These are stringed instruments. The first, my translation says lyre. Yours may call it something else. It's a smaller stringed instrument than the second one called the harp. It has 10 strings. The first, two to four strings. What do they look like? You can Google it. You can just Google it. Ancient Israelite instruments, if you'd like. Kind of a fun thing. If you go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem... You can see ones they found or replicas thereof. So anyway, these are, the psalmist says, give thanks, use these musical instruments, sing to him a new song. Ah, kiss your hymnal goodbye. There it is, sing a new song. Therefore, they must all be contemporary. In fact, last month's new songs, taboo, they're not new now. So they have to constantly be new. Start writing new songs. No. That is not what it means. It does not mean new necessarily in the sense of never heard before or novel. It means new in the sense of freshly sung. Why? If the mercies of God are new every morning, our response of praise ought to be new and fresh every morning. It means don't stagnate, praiser of God. Fight it. Keep the relationship fresh. Ask God to refresh you. Revival, 
You know, we pray about revival for our nation. I don't quite understand that. Because in order to be revived, you have to be vived. We don't pray for revival of an unsaved nation. We pray for the salvation of an unsaved nation. We pray for the revival of us. We can, we can grow. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. See, that's what we're fresh, fresh, new. In other words, don't let praise, singing, worship, prayer, fight it. Let it be fresh. In our first hour, John Mark sang, uh, have you ever heard this song? I come to the garden alone. Sure you have. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the meadow. He walks with me and he talks with me. He tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. You know, I know the words. I know the song. It's old. But on that occasion, it was fresh. Why? I'm not so virtuous. I've just had a really good walk with the Lord the last few days. You say, well, you're a minister. It ought to be good all the time. I know it ought to, but it ain't. (laughs) I'm you. You're me. We have our ups and downs. We have dry spells. But the last few days have been intensely fresh, vibrant, and meaningful. And when John Mark sung that song, not new in the sense of novel, it was new in the sense, oh, God, I walk with you. You walk with me. Thank you, Lord. I praise you for your approachability and availability. See, that's kind of what's in view over here. Keep, keep your worship fresh. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. If you're going to offer praise to God vocally or with an instrument, be good at it. I, I was in a church many, many years ago, another state, not this one, very small Baptist church. A lady would sing solos from time to time, and she really, really enjoyed doing that. And she had the distinction of being the only one who enjoyed it when she... (laughs) It was painful. I used to say, God, she's great. She's dedicated. She loves you. We love her and all the rest. But, oh, God, please, why not the rapture? Like, right now! We're going through tribulation. I thought it was a pre-tribulational rip. It was just... You sort of have to know. I think the point is, uh, give God your best. You know, an unblemished male lamb without defect, we see is the order of affairs in the book of Leviticus. You don't give him like the second best in your flock. It has to be number one, first best. Why? Well, you see, the word of the Lord is upright. Verse four. So what? Well, so that makes him different than everybody else. Who else's word is upright? What does that mean? A person's word is upright when there is coincidence between their speaking and their doing, meaning what they speak, they will do. That makes their speaking upright. Of whom is that true today? I'm going to tell you, we are more cynical, less trustful than ever. We feel like we're being sold a bill of goods, politically, in churches, surely on TV. If I hear one more reverse mortgage commercial by some guy who really is caring for me, I just want to kill somebody. <laughs> yeah. Whose word is it? A friend says, oh, good to see you. Hey, I'll call you tomorrow. We'll do lunch. But then no call. 
I mean, it's not the end of the world, but it just means that person's word's not upright. See, there's a gap between speaking and doing. And so we're seeing that widely today. Hey, let's get together Wednesday. Oh, what time Wednesday night? I'll meet you at 5.30. Six o'clock, you show up. Your word is not upright. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I'm just trying to tell you. That seems to be increasingly common. But we praise God with freshness because it is absolutely foreign to him what he says he does. You can count on it. There's no, there's no inconsistency. The speaking is the doing. It can only be said of him. All his work is done in faithfulness. You see, he loves righteousness and justice. He loves that. The earth, in fact, is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now, that's a word pregnant with meaning. I've developed before. I want to do it again. The word loving kindness, Hebrew, chesed. It's spelled like chesed, chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. But don't say it that way because you'll blow your cover. People will know you're a Gentile. We don't want, we don't want that to happen. Chesed. We want, want to try it? Chesed. Yeah, clears all the... Chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. Now, I'll tell you why it's such a wonderful, wonderful word. It's love without respect to its object. Love without respect to its object. It's love which emanates from the choice of the one bestowing it. For what reason? He wants to. That's the kind of love we get. And we try to talk God out of it. He said, God, I know you love me, but do you know what I just did? Sure. But I love you. Here's chesed love, the word anyway. But I love you anyway. A Christian is an anyway person. Absolutely flawed. Still struggling with sin, but loved by God anyway. That's what a Christian is. An an anyway person. That's what chesed is. It's God's love. It's irrespective of the unloveliness of the object. That's our love. Friendship love. Be my friend. I love you. Cease to be my friend. It's not romantic love. It's not, it's not even marital love. No, it's, it's just different. It's God love. You know, we, God, I don't have a heart for you like I should. I don't spend time with you. I don't even want to. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I love you anyway. God doesn't do love. From time to time. God is love. See, we do love. That doesn't mean we're loving. It just means we do love. The acts of love are actually apart from our nature. Just stuff we do. But it's part and parcel of his nature. He are love. And that kind of thing fills the earth. It's just right there. Earth is full of the... What do you mean how? Even for the unbeliever. The manifestation of the loving kindness of God is evident. What do I mean? The sun shines on believer and unbeliever. Rains water the crops of believer and unbeliever. There's morning. There's evening time. There's predictable rotation of seasons. We function. We are provided for. We are sustained. The earth is filled with the loving kindness of God, which presumes that the earth, therefore, would be filled with the praise of God. But it's not. Because the average earth dweller does not give God the credit. Therefore, the upright ones must. It's not fitting for unbelievers to offer praise to the God they don't even know. It is the calling of the upright ones. 
The earth is filled with the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Wow, so much for evolution. I'm telling you, one fell swoop. It's by the word. The instrumentality for the creation order was, and God said. It wasn't phased. It wasn't um, requiring eons of time. It wasn't through perspiration or effort of, of a divine kind. God said, let there be, and there done was. And not only did God speak heavens, also by the breath of his mouth, all their host. What does that mean? Sun, moon, stars, everything we count on for seasons, for directions, for uh, prediction of weather patterns. All of these things, God said, let it be, and it was. Therefore, the psalmist says, you, you, how could you withhold praise from such a God? You know what? You know what he does? The psalmist, let's extract one element in creation order, water. Let's talk about water, verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Can you do that? No, you cannot. I was in Louisiana during Katrina. I love the Army Corps of Engineers, but man, they couldn't contain the waters in the Mississippi River and all the rest. Man, we were flooded like crazy. You've heard of this thing called a tsunami. Oh my heavens, it could take the lives of thousands just so quickly. We cannot contain the waters, but God can. Look at that. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. You know what? Just like you gather up your shoes and put them away in your closet, that's what God can do with water. He can just gather it up because he's a power above all powers. And he can bound it if he so chose. This is a God who deserves praise. It's not just unruly people he's in control of. It's unruly everything. All this to illustrate his sovereignty. He is to be praised. What is the logical response of all this? Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. But they won't. It won't. So let all those who've been saved by the Lord fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Folks, it is wise. It's not a leap of faith. It is wise to be at peace with that God. It is unwise to be at odds with that God. Don't do it. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. But the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. And here is your political therapy. You're looking to our nation, the nation, the leaders of the nations, Oh, my goodness, things are tumultuous, to say the least. Unbelievable. Hang in there. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples if they are not consistent with what he wants accomplished. He has veto power. And you know him by name. And he knows you by name. So I keep up with what's going on in the Middle East. It's an area of interest to me. Wow. Things are really getting crazy. Wow. In the Middle East. I read, I keep up. And things happen to me. I get depressed. I get angry. I get in the flesh. 
<gasps> and then I get right with God. And I offer him praise and remember, oh God, most high God, none of this is taking you by surprise. Every bit of it can be useful to you in accomplishing your redemptive purposes. These people are just vessels and vehicles. The power brokers of the world do not possess the power you possess. Oh God, confound their plans to the extent they're contrary to your will. I add a little something. I add confound Israel's enemies. You don't have to do that, but I do that because I want to be biblical. So, so I remind myself who's really calling the shots that I get over it and I watch American Idol. Live life. But I mean, that's sort of the value of praise. Praise is reminding yourself. God knows who he is. Praise is reminding yourself and those whom you love of whom God is. He's sovereign. How much sovereignty? Omnipotent. Yeah. Lots of powers carving up the world. He's the most powerful. Omni, all powerful. The counsel of the... Now, by contrast with verse 10, verse 11... Though he nullifies the counsel of the nations, verse 10, look at verse 11, yet the counsel of the Lord stands forever. You know, when we say, oh God, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven, he said, it will be. (laughs) Thy will will be done. Why? Because nothing can interfere with the counsel of the Lord, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You know who that is in terms of the context? That's Israel. That's Israel. In the context. Who do you think it's speaking of? America? It didn't exist. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's Israel. But by extension, it's any group, assemblage of people who call upon the name of the Lord and have experienced the blessing of adoption into his family. So it's the group called Christians. Blessed is that people group whose God is the Lord Jesus. The people, Christians, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. That's what the New Testament says. You did not save yourself. You done got saved. Why? Chesed, love. Why me and not someone else? Someone else would be a better choice. God says, I know, but I saved you anyway. Blessed is that people group whose God is the Lord. The Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. So I want to ask you a diagnostic question. Does that make you feel good or bad? Personal. Your answer will tell you where you stand with God. If the fact that God, though he be transcendent and in heaven, if the fact that in spite of it, he sees everything, if that gives you comfort, you are rightly related to him. If it causes you distress, you're not. See, it gives you comfort if you say, oh, God, this is, every once in a while, I feel like a disenfranchised, just disconnected, floating around in life, no mooring point, no direction, no connection, nobody cares. Oh, God, even though you're the most high God, you see, you care. See, that gives you comfort. But it causes you distress if you're on the run from God. Why? He's light. Sin is darkness. 
and the darkness could not stand the light, for their deeds were evil. So if you don't like this uh, examination, this interest, this intimacy, this this fact that God can find you no matter where you try to hide from him in his world, if you don't like that, you're not right with him. Get right with him. He looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of... See, from his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. By the way, see the word hearts, hearts of them all? actually mind why does it say mind because in hebrew we don't actually have a word for mind we use the word heart to indicate thought you know what it's saying god knows our thinking and then he knows when we externalize our thinking in works he knows everything a little bit of a transition now the king a political leader an authority figure a prime minister, a president, a king, a queen, whatever. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. It doesn't deliver anyone by its great strength. What's the equivalent of a horse? A tank brigade, an airborne division, a howitzer unit doesn't deliver. Hope in material is not the source of deliverance. Hope in the God who is spirit is the source of deliverance. You know what this says? God will not deliver someone whose confidence is placed in that which is material. Because the one who places his or her confidence in that which is material is essentially saying to God, I found another savior. And God cannot save those who reject him. Look, here's the deal. God will not save the self-confident. He won't. Why? Because he's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself. Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. It's a gentle bird. It's not a ravenous wolf or bear. God woos us and invites us, but doesn't impose himself upon us. He will not save the self-confident. The self-confident one says, thank you for your offer of salvation, but I do not need it, for I can save myself. And God said, we have nothing further to discuss. He cannot be a savior except those who will to be saved. I didn't put down military strength and all the rest. No way. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that's not the savior. That could be the means that the savior uses to affect his plans. But just see it as the means. It's not the end. Politics, military, might, economics. It's just tools that God can use. We must not worship the tool. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. He watches everyone, but here his gaze is entirely different. This is an invited gaze. Those who fear him, not tremble, respect and reverence him. They have God's attention. Like when when a parent can identify a child in a crowd. Those of you have children, grandchildren, you know, have you gone to a t-ball game, a soccer game? Whatever. There's the kids. You know, they're all playing. There's a lot of stuff going on. Who has your attention? One kid. You just look at me. Oh, oh, there he is. Oh, there she is. You get a you get a graduation picture. You know, like third grade graduation picture. You got sixty kids there. You know, and you quickly get it. You're the grandparent. Wait, 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 wait. Second row. Second row. 
And your wife says, no, that's not her. I'm telling you, it is. She's right. But you, you, you see what I mean? This is how God, those who fear him, which is simple, again, not to shake in your boots. No, 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 no. Those who respect him for whom he is uh, um, are rewarded by his fatherly attention. We're not lost in the crowd, you see. And he attends to us, why? Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. But wait, that must not be true. Christians die. Hmm. What does this mean? It means that God has not fulfilled his promise unless you understand he has eternity in which to do it. See, if you confine, if you limit God to now time, because you are limited to now time, you will not see the fulfillment of all of his promises. Many, maybe most of the promises in the Bible are not going to be entirely fulfilled this side of eternity. Hence, we get disappointed with God because we're so locked into time. But don't lock him who is outside of time in time. Heaven is required for God to fulfill his promises. They're not going to all be fulfilled here. That's right. Christians die. Christians experience pain and affliction. Sunday night, we went to a funeral service, some of us, one of our wonderful men, a deacon in the church, Richard Kessinger, passed away, 83 years old. A fall accelerated his departure. And a few months ago, I heard of a person I knew, not 83, 63. I knew him. I ministered with him on the streets of Chicago with Jews for Jesus. He was my boss. He also fell at 63, hit his head, and also departed. I looked at God. Why? Why does one get 20 more years? A 63-year-old married, adult children, grandchildren, high on life, a minister of the gospel. What's up, God? I don't know. I don't get it because I don't get eternity. I want to tell you what every person in this room is going to say to Jesus the first time we see him, one way or the other. I know this is going to happen. Everyone here, when we see him for the first time face to face, everyone here is going to say or think, I should have trusted you more. Everyone here. Because now in eternity we see that why a 63, why an 83, why this, why the, nothing which makes sense as if we think we make more sense than God. We question his faithfulness and we say, oh, my heavens, you used it all. I get it now. I should have trusted you more. You know what we're going to do? We're going to cry. Why? We're disappointed because we should have trusted him more. You know what he's going to do? He's going to reach into his big pocket and extract this marvelous divine handkerchief. (laughs) And he's going to dry our tears. 
Now that part I don't know, but I do know the personal touch. For the book of Revelation says, and he shall wipe every tear. He, personal, shall wipe every tear from their eyes. What's the source of the tears? I think part of it is this disappointment in ourselves. We should have trusted him. And he's going to say, now stop. I am making all things new. The first things have all passed away. Now he's going to say, serve me forever. Praise me forever. Sing a new song every day, though it won't be called day. Forever. Now that everything makes sense to you. You and I who wait for the deliverance of God in various areas have to accommodate our calendar to his. Ours is now. If not now, I'll give you a week. His is eternity. The fulfillment of God's promises require eternity. And by the way, he will deliver the soul of every God-fearer from death, though not necessarily physical. But what's worse, the last enemy, death. How? By faith in the resurrection of the one who is the resurrection. When Jesus rose from death, he defeated the last enemy and rose as the first fruits, meaning there's fruit to come. That means believers who see him to be the resurrection and the life. And so the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be where? Present with the Lord. He will fulfill the promise. It's going to require eternity for it to happen. Our soul waits for the Lord, verse 20. He's our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. So we better figure out what the secret name of God is. See, that's what occultic people think. A name has power. It's occultic. Magic. The ancients actually believed that. To know a, a, a powerful one's name is to have control. That's not what it means. The Hebrew concept of a name means the character of the one named. When it says, our heart rejoices because we trust in his holy name, it's essentially saying we rejoice because our trust is in the character of God. It's not a secret specific name of God. It means, you know what gives us hope? It's the fact that God is obligated to be who he is. Nothing can change. Years ago, I pastored a church in Chicago. And I prayed in the service. And on this occasion, I wasn't trying to prove a point. I just, I said, thank you, God, for listening. God bless you. We love you. Amen. Well, a lady came up to me at the end of the service. She said, I'm not coming back here. I resisted the temptation to say, yay. Because we're not supposed supposed to say that. So instead I said, why? (laughs) By why I meant yay, but okay. Why? She said, because you didn't pray in Jesus' name. See, that's a poor lady who was attaching magic to a sound. No, no, no. The name is the summation 
the character qualities of the one named. He has a holy name. What? That means he is obligated to be who he said he is. Who is he? I'm faithful. I have my eye upon you. I will deliver you. I rejoice in righteousness. My word to you is upright. That's the cause of our new song and our worship and our praise in this day of fluctuating circumstances and fickleness of humankind and uncertainty of human words. Our confidence in the fact that God is true to whom he said he is. That's our hope. And in closing, let me tell you this. Something else everyone in this room must say by reason and logic is this. Though you're filled with questions, as am I, you must attach an exclamation point to this if you're honest. Everyone here must say, thus far, the Lord has been my help. Why? Because you're evidence of the fact in being alive today that he has been. Though there have been times in your life you didn't think you'd make it another moment, another day. Grief, loss, affliction of different kinds have so overwhelmed you. You were gasping for air. You didn't call upon his name. You couldn't. You were looking for a reason to be. And somehow there's still pain. I understand that. But somehow it's been measured. The intensity of it has been dealt with. And somehow through thick and thin, somehow you're here today. Now, we don't know what tomorrow holds. I didn't say that. You can't make promises you can't keep. I'm just saying uh, today, every one of us has to say, I don't know how it all worked out. I really don't. I don't know how I got here. It wasn't the strength of armies. It wasn't a horse. It wasn't this. It wasn't confidence in anyone. It was that you are true to who you are. And that accounts for the fact thus far you have been my help. Everyone here must say that. What about Tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. And when we see him face to face, we will say, I should have trusted you more. You know what's hard to do? Let Jesus save you. You know why that's hard? It means you have to nullify human pride. Who likes that? I mean, the mere insinuation that you need a savior other than you means you ain't he. Who likes that? So to trust Jesus to save is difficult. You know what's harder now that you've done that? To trust Jesus to sustain. Harder. You know he he has forgiven your sins. You're not looking for another savior. You know that. I'm saved. I'm born anew. I'm To trust him to save you is not nearly as difficult as to trust him to sustain you. You haven't seen him, neither have I. And therefore, we exercise options. We always have a backup plan, you see, just in case he doesn't take care. He doesn't provide. He isn't my supply. I'll hoard. I'll store. I'll do. I'll do. And this is the road we travel. We say, oh, God, help me to trust you more for life. I trust you for eternal life. Help me to trust you more for the journey in this life. That's tough. That's tough. And what's the basis of it? He is true to his holy name. So Lord Jesus, We worship you for all of the reasons we've discussed, who you are, what you have done, are doing, and will do. And we pray, O God, 
you would continue to prove yourself to be trustworthy to us, for we're little children being parented by you, our most trustworthy Heavenly Father. Thank you for your patience with us in our journey. Thank you, O God, in manifold ways for showing us your mercies in a fresh way, new every morning. Put this new and fresh song, therefore, in our mouth. And thank you for the time when you will be perfectly vindicated, not only in the eyes of those who reject you, but even in the eyes of those who truly accept you. Vindicated with regard to your ways. We'll see them to be faithful and true and good. Until then, oh God, help us to trust you more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Please uh, let it be duly noted that you're getting out much earlier than every other class, than the people in the auditorium. You can thank me later.